You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In today's episode, host Dr. Melissa Lyle interviews Dr. Michelle Kittleson, a professor of medicine at Cedars-Sinai, director of education in heart failure and transplantation, and director of heart failure research at the Schmidt Heart Institute. They're going to be talking about non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or NHCM, and its management, with a specific focus on symptoms such as congestion, angina, and exercise intolerance. The discussion also extends to the potential future application of gene editing technologies, such as CRISPR, and the consideration of advanced therapies like cardiac transplantation for patients with NHCM. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Lyle and Dr. Kittleson. So welcome, Dr. Kittleson, and so glad you could be with us today. Thank you, Dr. Lyle. It's a delight to be here. So as we know, non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is defined as having no significant left ventricular outflow tract obstruction or an LV outflow graft gradient of less than 30 millimeters of mercury. Patients with non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, though, can still have significant symptoms. And treatment is relatively sparse, but in their past, there was no really proven pharmacologic therapies for this subgroup of patients. So Dr. Kittleson, how do you manage the symptoms of congestion associated with non-obstructive HCM? And given the overlap between heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and non-obstructive HCM, do you think that there's a role for SGLT2 inhibitors? Such a good question. And I have to say the topic of this podcast is one of the most challenging topics I deal with. You know, it's not satisfying when you a patient presents to you with symptoms of chest discomfort, dyspnea on exertion, and you can't point to the echocardiogram and look at an obstruction and say, aha, I know exactly why you have these symptoms. Now, the symptoms are typically from the increased left ventricular filling pressures related to diastolic dysfunction, decompensated heart failure, increased myocardial oxygen demand, impaired microvascular function. And assuming you've also ruled out epicardial coronary disease, the focus on management can include beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, diuretics, if there's clear volume overload present, but you have be cautious to avoid symptomatic hypotension, hypovolemia. And then you ask the best question, can you extrapolate from currently recommended effective therapies for garden variety heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Predominantly, we have the strongest evidence in HEFPEF for the SGLT2 inhibitors. I would say it's the kind of thing where it may be useful. I, I categorize it in the can't hurt may help category. However, recognize the SGLT2 inhibitors do have a diuretic effect. And because of that, if the if your patient gets symptomatic hypovolemia, hypotension, kidney dysfunction, you may want to back off, but absolutely worth a try. As, as we're realizing, the multiple mysterious and magical effects of the SGLT2 inhibitors mean they kind of seem to work for everything. 
Right. Absolutely. No, I definitely agree. 100% worth a try to see if it helps to relieve some of those symptoms. And you already touched a little bit upon it, talking about calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. But when someone is coming in mostly with the symptoms of angina and exercise intolerance, you're focusing on beta blockers and non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers as first line. But do you feel that there's any role for renolazine or trimetazidine? Yeah, that's really a good question. So I'd say the first thing to remember when you have a patient with chest discomfort and HCM, don't assume it's always the HCM. Make sure you have done your due diligence with history, physical, and or other testing as guided by your history and physical to rule out obstructive coronary disease that would change your management. Then, as you know, beta blockers and our calcium channel blockers titrated to symptoms as limited by heart rate and blood pressure. Okay, let's talk about renolazine. Studied in the Restyle HCM trial published back in 2018, 80 patients with symptomatic non-obstructive HCM randomized to placebo or renolazine for five months. No impact on exercise performance, plasma, anti-proBNP, diastolic function, quality of life. Then you have, as you noted, trimetazidine, which is another inhibitor of cardiac fatty acid oxidation. Studied JAMA Cardiology 2019. 51 patients, symptomatic non-obstructive HCM, randomized placebo or trimetazidine, no impact on exercise capacity. But you could say, listen, these are small studies. Maybe they just didn't have the power to detect the effect. So I would say the right answer is what works. There's no reason not to try a medication like renolazine if nothing else is working because the safety profile clearly from these trials is acceptable. No, I think that is fantastic advice. And I think the two key takeaways for me is to also make sure that we're not missing something, as you said, not missing obstructive coronary disease and kind of focusing just on the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy diagnosis. But then also, I like that mantra of just what works, trying things to help help get rid of their symptoms. I think that's great advice. So when we think now more of kind of newer treatment options, so the cardiac mitotrope ninorefaxstat was recently evaluated in the phase two trial for improved HCM, and it showed improvement in functional capacity based on CPET data. Can you explain to us how this drug works and how it could potentially benefit patients with non-obstructive HCM? So first of all, I'm really glad you have to say the names of these medications before I do <laughs> I mean, isn't half of going to Hopefully medical school? Hopefully I did say it correctly. <laughs> great job. I mean, I think half of medical school is just memorizing the pronunciation. It's all grammar <laughs> exactly. and vocabulary. So ninorefaxstat, there we go. <laughs> it's, it's a mitotrope. So what does that mean? It's a compound which influences energetics. So in this case, partial fatty acid oxidation. Remember, we talked about that earlier with the renolazine, trimetazidine. So it's designed to shift the myocardial substrate utilization in favor of glucose oxidation to generate more ATP per unit oxygen consumed and thereby increase myocardial metabolic efficiency. So that's the theory why it should be helpful in HCM. If you can make energetics, myocardial energetics better, then patients will have more efficient use of their myocardium. Now, as you know, studied in the improved HCM trial, randomized, double-blind, placebo control, 
investigating, because it was phase two, safety and some efficacy, Nurofaxstat for 12 weeks in 67 patients with non-obstructive HCM. The top line results came out in November of 2023 with, as you noted, a statistically significant improvement in the functional cardiopulmonary exercise test associated with a clinically relevant improvement in patient reported outcomes. I think we have to stay tuned to delve deeper once we actually see the trial data. I think we also need to stay tuned for phase three clinical trials. This is actually hugely beneficial, however. This is this gives us a lot of hope. Because as we said, non-obstructive HCM, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for the patient who has these symptoms. It's frustrating for the physician who knows they have these symptoms, but nothing we know works. And it, I think for patients, they they never want to feel like, oh, it's all in my head. If, at least if you have obstructive HCM, you can point at a problem. Here it's harder to. And thus, I'm really excited by this group of mitotropes, which may offer more hope to our patients. So stay tuned. Yeah, I think that that is a wonderful point too. It's it's because nothing has really seemed to work in the past. And so now we have hope. It's sort of similar to the pathway for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, like we were talking about earlier, that for so long, there was not a lot of hope. And then once we started to get further trials with SGLT2 inhibitors. So I think with the cardiac mitotropes, that's offering that hope, as you mentioned, for for the non-obstructive HCM patients. So looking forward to all of that data and potential phase three trials in the future. And then also pivoting to to other potential drugs that might be helpful in this realm. Of course, we know about cardiac myosin inhibitors for obstructive cardiac HCM. So what about for non-obstructive? The Maverick HCM phase two trial demonstrated that Mavicamptin was associated with a significant dose-dependent reduction in NT-proBMP and troponin in patients with non-obstructive HCM. So Mavicamptin is now being evaluated in the phase three trial Odyssey HCM. So I feel like this is a pretty hot topic. So Dr. Kittleson, what role do you think that cardiac myosin inhibitors will play in treating symptoms for non-obstructive HCM in the future? This is really exciting, right? You know, Mavicamptin is a huge game changer for patients with obstructive HCM. And of course, obstructive HCM is not the topic of this podcast, but you will all go and read the Valor HCM trial and ooh and ah about the enormous effect size of transforming patients with obstructive HCM who felt so horrible. They were willing to undergo an invasive procedure to help their symptoms who didn't need one anymore because this medicine worked and improved their quality of life to such a degree. I'm hugely impressed and excited by the role of Mavicamptin in patients with refractory severe symptoms of obstructive HCM. But as you note, why not repurpose it for non-obstructive HCM? And Maverick HCM took 51 patients, symptomatic non-obstructive HCM, there was a significant reduction in NT-proBNP and troponin, suggesting improvement in myocardial wall stress, but surrogate endpoints are not clinical endpoints. 
it stands to reason it will work because regardless of the hemodynamic features of obstructive versus non-obstructive HCM, they have a shared underlying biomechanical abnormality and the sarcomeric gene variants that cause HCM can destabilize the low energy, super relaxed state of cardiac myosin, promote excessive cross-bridging with actin, culminating in hypercontractility and impaired relaxation. So if you have a cardiac myosin inhibitor, make that all go away. It stands to reason that it should help if you are obstructive or non-obstructive. But I like to say that the road to bad outcomes is paved with plausible pathophysiology, surrogate endpoints, and wishful thinking. We all can think of times in cardiac history where we've been burned by a thought that the improvement in surrogate endpoints would translate into benefits. Thiazolidinediones improved A1C, but they caused heart failure. Hormone replacement therapy makes your lipid profile look better, but oops, on the whole, it's not that great for you long-term. Oh, and what about flecainide? make your PVCs go away post MI, but you might actually die sooner. So all of that to say, I'm very excited. I'm cautiously optimistic, but show me the data before we know it's going to help our patients. I love that. And I think, you know, key, key takeaway is that surrogate endpoints, like you mentioned, not clinical endpoints. So let's see the data and, and be hopeful, but definitely want to see the data for sure. So thank you for that. That was great. Now, we think about kind of the hotter topics that that everyone's talking about. You know, obviously in the amyloid world, we talk a lot about CRISPR. And so what do you think about gene editing for patients with non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Do you think that there will be a role for gene editing in the future? I mean, it's a brave new world, isn't it? It's so <laughs> a doctor. You know, when I was in medical school, I was like, stop with all the new information. I can't even memorize the old information. But once you've been doing it for a while, it's so exciting that there's new things to delve into, to try to understand, to help our patients. So there are two studies that came out in Nature Medicine in 2023, using this CRISPR-Cas9 adenine-based editing. They took mice models of HCM that, and they had a common pathogen variant, the MYH7 mutation, and they showed dramatic reduction in hypertrophy and fibrosis by using this fancy gene editing technology. So both studies showed an improvement in the disease phenotype, better contractility, reduced fibrosis on histology. But I mean, mice aren't humans. It's like all the pediatricians say, Children are not little adults. Okay, I'll say mice are not humans. So super exciting. I mean, exciting enough to be presented in nature medicine, but wow. I mean, if we redo this podcast in five years when we're older and wiser, probably have more to say. Uh, absolutely. So not quite ready for prime time, but <laughs> the future to, to be determined. So we've talked a lot about kind of the basics with beta blockers and non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. We've talked about more experimental treatment with cardiac mitotropes and also the potential for cardiac myosin inhibitors. 
But what happens when all of those therapies don't work and a patient comes with more advanced symptoms that are life-limiting and we need to start thinking about advanced therapies such as cardiac transplant? So when do you start thinking about that and how's your initial evaluation for those patients? Perfect. So whenever I evaluate any patient for heart transplantation, advanced therapies in general, or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in particular, I ask myself two questions. Is their heart sick enough? And is the rest of their body well enough? So is their heart sick enough, particularly in patients with HCM? Your very first question is going to be, do they have obstructive physiology? Because if they do, well, focus on that. Give them the beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, disopyramid, mavicamptin. Give them a septal reduction therapy, alcohol septal ablation, surgical myectomy, because you can try to fix that short of a transplant. But if you have convinced yourself it is truly non-obstructive HCM, then you can say the next step, how do you figure out if the heart is sick enough? It would be the traditional criteria we use for really any other patient. Did they have progressive symptoms, inability to do their daily activities without shortness of breath? Are they getting hospitalized because of decompensated heart failure? Are they having intractable and scary and life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias? Are they developing end-organ dysfunction related to their cardiomyopathy with cardiorenal syndrome, worsening liver function, rising pulmonary artery pressure? And when you start to rack up those findings is when you start to worry. It can be useful to have objective criteria from a right heart catheterization and a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test documenting reduced functional capacity. And a few pearls to remember. When we think about HCM, these patients are typically hyperdynamic and bad things start to happen when their EF falls below 50%. So red flag warning for an EF of less than 50%, not like your traditional HEFREF. You start thinking about bad systolic dysfunction in HCM when they fall below 50 and you can have a preserved EF and still have all these severe symptoms and still need a transplant. So EF becomes less important in patients with HCM. Another, the good news, is the rest of their body well enough? Well, these patients tend to typically be younger. And we know that in case series of registries, that patients who undergo transplant because of HCM actually have outstanding post-transplant outcomes. So think, is the heart sick enough? Make sure you've ruled out obstructive HCM. And uh, have you looked at the traditional criteria of why patients are limited? And then is the rest of the body well enough? And likely they will be because they don't have the typical comorbidities due to their relatively young age. Perfect. That That is excellent and really wonderful pearls there. So we have covered a lot today, really the whole spectrum of, of treatment options for non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So Dr. Kittleson, thank you so much for joining and for all of the wonderful pearls. And thank you to everyone for listening in to this episode of In the Thick of It. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. That was Dr. Lyle and Dr. Kittleson. For more information on this study, visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.